and we did some team-based interventions based on a few different models of what is a high-performing team, a lot of Google research, etc. And we did an assessment of how high-performing does the team feel they are. And then we brought them together, did a debrief, and then started to implement some of the education that came from that assessment. And over a period of three months, we saw their, their line efficiency or OEE increase by 5% just because of the woo-woo team stuff. And I think it was at that moment where I realized that, oh, it's not just about the technology. It's just not just about the equipment. But if we get people to talk to each other better, give better feedback, have better shift changeover, lead with clarity, set priorities, make sure everyone understands the values that you can perform better. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, our guest Jeff Robbins talked about how being a musician in a successful touring band prepared him to be a CEO and a founder. Our guest today was in a very different institution before joining the corporate world. Mike Sweeney spent the early years of his career in the military. From there, he went on to a very successful career. He specialized in leadership and development training programs, with a big focus on building and leading high-performing teams. He did that work at some amazing company and very well-respected brands, and he operated in very different fields. For instance, he worked at the ENJ Gallo Winery and also at Strategy Consultants Bain & Company. Right now, he is the Chief Strategy Officer at Rally Bright a company that blends services and technology to help its clients develop inclusive and resilient high-performing teams. Mike talked about some of the less obvious leadership lessons he learned in the military and how running a manufacturing team inspired his passion for the actual process of improving team performance. And of course, he shared a lot of insights on how to build and run high-performing teams. Enjoy the episode. Let's have you start like I ask all my guests, tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and feel free to use as much or as little time as you want. Oh my goodness. Tell me about yourself. I think I'd start with, I'm a, a dad of daughters. So that's taught me a lot over the years. Uh, and all three of them are teenagers right now. I'm a runner. I'm a learner. And on the career side, I've spent many, many years focusing on building high-performing teams, developing leaders, and finding efficient ways to develop. And I, I think early in my career, I did some Lean Six Sigma work. So I'm usually thinking about what's value and what's not value. And that includes my own personal time. And I try to remove waste wherever possible and focus on living my values, making sure that I'm a great father, making sure that I'm a decent business professional and a great friend. And I'd say those are some of the pieces that define a bit more about who I am. What I'm interested in learning a little more about is you obviously had a long career leading team in different environments, but always with this interesting sort of like meta parallel that you were building and leading team to then teach people how to be leaders and, and better in their organization. So how did you start forming the vision of the leader that you aspire to be? Well, I think it's there's a couple different components to it. So the first was a moment when I was elected captain of a high school team, my cross-country team. 
And I remember my dad signed me up for a running camp, which, I mean, what do they teach you in a week? One foot in front of the other, left first, then right, you know, all the jokes. But he said, look, you're the leader. So you have a responsibility to set an example. And I think that was the first time I realized like, oh, wait a minute. I I didn't realize a leader had a different responsibility. And I remember him (laughs) pretty much forcing me to go to this thing, but it was a great experience. I came back and I had some new tools to help. And then when I went into the military right out of college, servant leadership is really at the core. Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service. And I think that foundation was poured very early. Um, If you think about some of the early things that people learn in military service as a leader, you're checking your soldiers' feet, like if you're on a march, to make sure that they're dry. And in some ways, it's to make sure that you keep enough soldiers on the battlefield. But it comes from a place of service. And so I learned that really early on that I'm only important as my ability to set direction and check to make sure everybody's okay moving in the right direction and cared for. I struggled as I left the military to move into corporate leadership because I didn't really know what it took. And I found the dedication level of your average soldier to be a lot higher than the incoming corporate worker. So I, I, I struggled a little bit. And I got some feedback early in my career in corporate that I wasn't doing a good job as a leader. And that, to me, was the door opener to, well, wait a minute, what is feedback? You know, how am I showing up? And I think that put me on a perpetual path of growth. But the fuel for that development was, I'm not a good leader. And so I think I spent many, many years trying to dig myself out of a hole until I I had heard, gotten some feedback along the way that like, you know, hey, you're the best leader I've ever had. And, and it surprised me. And I started to hear that more frequently. I'm humble enough to know that probably for that person, but not for everyone. But I think that that effort over time to make sure that I was open to feedback, make sure that I was acting on that feedback, make sure I was learning about what great leaders do. I think that all came from a solid foundation and a pretty bad start. You mentioned that you spent time in the military and the whole industry of leadership suffers from a very superficial and stunted version of the lessons that the military can teach leadership. You know, the, there's, there's sort of this image of almost of like a caricature of the tough person that's in the army, that it's demanding. But you started your description of the leadership experience that you had in the military with the idea of servant leadership. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to sort of share some of the maybe deeper and more subtle lessons in leadership that you got from the military that go beyond the stereotypes that were usually sold on. Yeah, and it, it does kind of tick me off a little bit sometimes that the natural tendency is like autocratic dictatorial, uses rank to coerce people to doing XYZ. That was not my experience whatsoever, especially as an officer, because I had to earn credit by listening to others, the people who had more experience. Uh, The non-commissioned officers in the military are the ones who really run the military. And so I spent a lot of time listening and learning how it works and then adding my point of view later. Some of the things that really got me where I remember we used to do these like big exercises with like laser tag. You'd have them on tanks and on Bradleys and on individual people. 
And I remember we had a like a friendly fire situation where we our vehicle had engaged another vehicle. And it's a simulated situation, so it wasn't it wasn't a real battlefield situation. So those who have served in battlefield situations, I'm not making any sort of comparisons to c- the lessons they learn. But I remember doing a debrief. We always had these um, after action reviews. You know what went well, what didn't go so well, and what do we want to do differently next time? No blame. No discussion really of failure, just what went well, what didn't go so well, and what do we need to do differently? And one of the actions that I took away from that is uh, I had to write fictional letters home to that vehicle's occupants. And this is just a simulated situation. And I remember that that really increased my willingness to learn about situational awareness because I didn't want to have to do that again. So I think the the realism of some of the um, exercises that we had really taught me a few things. And then I think there, there's something about standing in front of a group of people every morning and, and trying to earn their respect that, you know, first of all, I'm in a tank platoon and I'm an English major from Duke. Like, what's this guy? Like, why did we get the guy? Why did we get this guy? And I felt like I had to earn my credibility. And I, I had two things going for me. I could learn and I could run. <laughs> So I used to try to just like study the manuals, like learn everything I could, learn about the history of battle, just so I could be a walking encyclopedia. And then when we, went, when we did our physical training, I wanted to just smoke the <laughs> smoke the guys. And and I think over time, they perceived some credibility in those areas, and then that allowed them to open up. It allowed me to open up. It allowed me to um, get really close to some of the folks. I remember having some conversations with uh, a platoon sergeant at one point, and I was talking about the psychology of warfare. And, you know, I was a liberal kid, English major, parents were teachers. It's like, what's this guy doing in in combat arms? And I remember the training we received was very strong, but the like, would I be able to do what I'm being trained to do? And I had a moment of vulnerability where I opened up to this platoon sergeant and I said, you know, I, I think it's an unnatural thing that we're being trained to do. And I and I want to make sure that I'm okay with it psychologically. And same thing with our soldiers. Like, and so we did we did some research on resilience and and you know, how do you make sure it's okay to talk about how things feel? And I remember we went to the woods one weekend and there were some of the folks who have been vets of the first Gulf War and they shared some of their stories and some of their experiences. And by being willing to say that I was a little afraid or say that, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this, that started a really nice conversation that allowed for some psychological safety. And I think that I had a series of those experiences over time that taught me what it's like to bring a group together. And I think there's nothing more, you know, just like a sports team, like when you're on a vehicle with three other people or five other people for a period of a couple months, you get tight, you get to learn about their family, you get to learn about their experiences, their hopes, their dreams. And I think there was a, there was a level of relationship intimacy that stood as a, cornerstone of a team coming together. And I feel like I've been searching for that in corporate for many years, and I can feel it when it happens. And there's individuals who want to learn, there's strong relationships between duos, and then the group as a whole has, has the safety to talk about the stuff that really matters. Forgive me for talking to think, but it was a curious question that made me reflect. 
you know, you talked about the image of autocracy and, you know, like very dictatorial. But one of the reflections that I had from the outside on the military is that in order for the military to work, you know, when you get into a combat situation, etc., you need this okay, this is the order, go and execute, because, you know, the lack of execution have ripple effects all over, right? But in order for somebody to execute, there needs to be trust that the person who's giving the order has put all the thoughtfulness and all the consideration to ask people to beat their life in arm's way. Yeah, and, it, and it's not a common thing to run towards danger. And it's also... If you're a leader and you say, follow me, and you have to wonder if they're going to follow you, that's a scary place to be as a leader. And so I feel like a lot of the activities, you know, the way there's a mission plus a commander's intent that gets disseminated down, there's the opportunity to practice and rehearse sandtable exercises. What happens when here? What's our second course of action? And it's usually people standing around a sand table or standing around a simulated situation talking about, well, what would you do? What would you do? And there's just, there's a lot of effort built into to pull out other people's point of view. I mean, there's, there's order and there's discipline, but you're right. There has to be that level of trust that this person's not going to put me in harm's way and I'll follow them because I trust that they care for my well-being. And, and they care for the mission. And I think both of those things are, are true. Did I experience moments of autocratic behavior? Sure. Did I have worked for some people that were like, just follow me no matter what? Sure. But I've worked for just as many since. And I mean, I wouldn't say any specific bosses, but like I've been around experiences in corporate where there's a bull in a china shop. There's a, a situation where there isn't psychological safety. And I think it exists everywhere, but I wouldn't say that that autocratic dictatorial, you know, rank has its privileges. That wasn't my experience. Oh, I agree with you. What I was trying to say is that in a combat situation or a conflict situation, that rank needs actually to work, but the counterbalancing of that needs to be that, you know, we as citizens who support the army and ultimately whoever is running the country has gone through all the effort to make sure that the second that you decide to enter a conflict and put your army and your military at risk, that is really the less possible resource and mean of resolving the issue. I believe the same thing. And it was a period in my life that I'm very, very proud of. But also I did have some conflict while I was there. Extremely proud of what I learned and what I did and, and how I led and what I learned. I think in interpersonal conflict, physical violence is the last resort. So I, I just put that on the meta level when it comes to countries communicating that I would imagine that there are some other ways to resolve conflict that don't need to get physical. Absolutely. So let's just get back to your career. You talked about making your transition from the military to corporate life. And really, you took this long path that it was all around development training and leadership training. What was the appeal there for you? I started really leading manufacturing teams at a winery, a bottling team, you know, how do you reduce cost per case, a warehousing team, how do you put away barrels in, in the most efficient way based on a winemaker's recipe. And then I started doing a, a few other things, plant management, working in, with environmental considerations. I took a job 
uh, working for a VP of operations and, and the role was called te- training and technology integration. It was like a staff role waiting for a big promotion to show up. And uh, that role, there had been a couple of really strong performers in it before me. And what we were doing is we were doing these, there were 18 bottling lines. We bottled about a million cases of wine a week. So it was, it was relatively busy and we were upgrading these lines in a union environment. So we had to figure out how do we teach people the new technology? How do we select the right people that might be more likely to use this kind of technology while recognizing that seniority was important? So what are the skills and abilities they need? We partnered with local workforce investment boards. We had an English teacher on staff. There were a lot of different things. But when we would do these line renovations, we would teach people not only how to use the equipment, but also how to work together as a team. And I had taken over the training department. I had been a bit critical of it. And the VP kind of said, all right, well, (laughs) see if you can make it better. And I worked with some really amazing trainers who knew conflict resolution, who knew good communication skills, who knew you know, how to teach behavior-based safety. And so what we would do is we would combine the technical education with the team education. And I'll never forget this guy. I'll say his first name. I won't say his last name. His name was Steve. And Steve said, hey, when you go to renovate my line, just teach me the technology stuff. I don't need any of that woo-woo team stuff. And I, and I kind of laughed. I'm like, oh, okay. Nice to meet you, Steve. And I said, well, what if I can convince you or prove to you that the team stuff gets you organizational performance? He said, well, then I would do it, but I'm not convinced. So I went and I I found this forward-thinking team leader. His name was Albert. And I had a production engineer and I had our our training folks. And the woman's name was Nita, who was kind of like the guru of team education that I was working with. And we said to Albert, we said, hey, we want to do a trial. We want to take one shift and we want to do this intervention. We're not going to train the technology. We're just going to train all these team skills. It's been a while since your team has had it. Um, And we did some team-based interventions based on a few different models of what is a high-performing team, a lot of Google research, et cetera. And we did an assessment of how high-performing does the team feel they are. And then we brought them together, did a debrief, and then started to implement some of the education that came from that assessment. And over a period of three months, we saw their their line efficiency or OEE increase by 5% just because of the woo-woo team stuff. And so then I went back to Steve and I said, hey, Steve, here's the data. He's like, all right, now you can teach the team. And I think it was at that moment where I realized that, oh, it's not just about the technology. It's just not just about the equipment. But if we get people to talk to each other better, give better feedback, have better shift changeover, lead with clarity, set priorities, make sure everyone understands the values that you can perform better. And that was the first time I ever tried to do it. And I started working with more of the organizational development folks. I was on a corporate action team. I taught in the leadership and training university. And working with those type of people, I realized like, oh, these are my people. Not surprising given both my parents were teachers for many years. My brother's a teacher. And I had a moment teaching a a group of managers about, I think it was situational leadership that really kind of struck a chord and resonated with me. And uh, there was a guy who was uh, one of the VPs who came to me and he said, hey, you're always talking about leadership and all this stuff and all these books you've read. Why don't you come out and talk to my team at our offsite in Monterey? And I just said yes right away. I was a very nervous public speaker at the time. 
But I prepped and prepped and prepped and put together this presentation on servant leadership and, and shared it with this group. And I got really good feedback and started to do that on a regular basis. So it was something about the, it's very, very hard to change a complex adaptive system that involves people in relationships. So the, the trickiness is one part. And also the people in L&D really fit for me. And I like the idea of finding ways to do it differently that drives performance. I mean, we were doing like flip, like if you have to change a labeler, you don't need to go to the classroom. You need like a quick flip phone video on how to change this particular thing at the moment of need. And that was before iPhones and before a lot of, you know, it was back in the days of CBT, computer-based training. But the idea of giving people a minimum effective dose using technology to learn just called to me. So I, I think it was multiple pieces. And I liked trying to find different ways to learn because I don't think I'm the best classroom learner. I think I did it decently, but I prefer to study on my own, watch a couple of videos, try it, get feedback, talk to people who have done it. And so I think sometimes in organizations, the learning department can be the choke point. You have all the people who have skills and all the people who need skills. And there's this narrow window, not the best in class organizations and certainly not my, my recent organization. That's you know high perform when it comes to opening up those channels. But I really like the idea of helping people, you know, connecting those who have skills with those who need skills. And it just felt right. There's something about it, like when the piece clicks into place and you go, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You had so many interesting things that you said. I wanted to have a little bit of practical advice for my listener. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Somebody who takes on a new team and hasn't had the luck of being in an organization that has formal training or team training. And what are some of the you know observations, first steps into like looking at the team and trying to figure out how well is this team operating? What are some of the things that can be done to improve it? I think if you think about it from a product standpoint, I think about like, well, what's the product for? Like, who, who's it? Wh what are we doing here? So I think getting a clear sense of like the system is one piece. You know, what, what are the inputs? What are the outputs? What's the process? Who are the stakeholders? Kind of like, what's the, what's the function? Understanding that is important. And you do that by listening to people, stakeholders, people on the team, leadership, etc. I think the second thing I'd say, and this is not in order, know who's on your team. Uh, what motivates them? What's their style? Do they, do they work late? Do they not work late? Kind of getting an understanding of um, their work styles and, and what makes them tick. It's kind of what you're for, who's on the team. I think those are the two places I'd start. And then making sure that the mission is clear and the, and the operating principles or values are clear. So this is our direction, not providing directions, but direction. Like we're headed here. We're here to do this thing, shared purpose, and then making sure there's a sense of how are we going to operate together? Like, what do we do with feedback? What do we do with customer information that comes in? You know, do we work late? Do we work early? What happens when people are on vacation? Do we bother them? I think those would be the things that I would do. So re recap and kind of understand the system, inputs, outputs, stakeholders, really know the team, and then setting up the mission and operating principles. Earlier in, in talking about your transition from the military to corporate, you said that, you know, in the military, 
it almost felt like there was a pretty clear set of expectation and level of commitment from everybody, much more even, if we all know there's exceptions everywhere, but much more even. And then in the corporate world, that was something that maybe wasn't always the same. What are some of the things that leaders or managers can do to optimize a diverse group of people? And I'm saying diverse in terms of attitudes, mentality, you know, that they're working with. Well, I, I will say that one of the reasons that I perceive people maybe as less bought in is because I was missing information. For example, there was a culture of safety that existed that meant work pace was not necessarily controlled, but like we wanted to make sure we did things to m- not put our fingers in harm's way, not hurt our backs when we lift. And so sometimes for me, it was I was missing the awareness as a leader. So I learned over time to study more, listen more, etc. When it comes to working with a, a group of uh, a diverse team, this last team that I worked with is probably the most diverse I've ever, I've ever worked with in terms of location and background and, and thought. Knowing what people's strengths are is really important and understanding what people's highest and best use is. Like, for, for example, I'm, I'm not that great a proofreader, but I always have a buddy who is. You know, I, I'm pretty good at making sense of uh, a messy set of qualitative data. And I can pick out the three themes pretty quickly. Hey, I think these are the three things we should focus on. Yeah, I can do some quantitative analytics, but I know there are people that do it better. I know there are certain people who are really good at establishing process. And so whenever I was working uh, on my teams, I'd try to figure out what people's strengths are. And I learned this, <laughs> learned this the hard way, I think. I'll go back to this one. I remember being in, being in the army and uh, I, I don't have the best sense of direction. My kids know that. Give me a map and get me out of the woods and I can probably find my way. But in the city, I, I'll take the wrong turn every time. And I, uh, there was this guy who was, he was a little disheveled. He was a little overweight. Not your typical like high-performing soldier. And usually on the lieutenant's vehicle, you get the high-performing soldiers. And he came up to me and he said, hey, I, I want to be on your vehicle. And I was like, uh, I, I don't know. And he said, well, I know I'm not, I don't run that fast. I know my uniform doesn't look all that squared away, but I'll never get you lost. (laughs) I was like, you're hired. So knowing what your own vulnerabilities are and knowing what individual strengths are is really important. I think there's also a a distinction that, that I've been coming to these days that there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. And I think that when you're asking people to fit into a certain mold or adjust themselves that's dangerous. Like, this is the way we do things. I think there's a lot of companies that, that interview and they're like, ah, this person's not a culture fit. Well, okay, well, how are they a culture ad? That's the thing that I'm usually looking for when I'm building teams. And so in a more, in a more diverse situation, you might, have, you might have to work harder to get belonging because you're not asking people to fit in. Bring your full self. You know, show up the way you show up. Use levity if you want to. And that means that the organization and the team and the system has to adjust to enable belonging, not the individual. And I think that's the part that is difficult when if you have organizations that are used to looking the same or feeling the same or thinking the same, when it's time to change the system, it's harder than asking the incoming person to change their behavior. And so that is one thing is I've been working with more diverse teams that uh, let's go after belonging, not fitting in. You said something that interestingly was my next question. You mentioned bring your own self. You know, you've been through institutions that at times probably did not encourage 
bring in your own self. I think I've known you personally for the for the past few years, and uh, definitely I can tell that you are your own self. But how has that transition been for you? Like, you know, was there a moment when you're like, oh, in order for me to succeed, I need to be more myself versus trying to fit it in? What was that moment like? Yeah, the, the instinct is usually the opposite. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I think I spent a lot of my career saying like, oh, in order to, you know, to fit in or in order to be successful, you need to be less like yourself. <laughs> There's kind of like the three buckets of, act, of behaviors, I think. There's like behaviors that you could consider strengths, behaviors that you can consider weaknesses, and then behaviors that are career derailers. And so I tend to work on building my strengths. I try to ignore the weaknesses, but the, the career derailers I do need to be aware of and be mindful of because they're there. I think about, and when I was coming on this, I was thinking about, well, what, what do I think about authenticity and, and what does that really mean? I think there's, there's a risk to being fully me sometimes. Like if I'm really going to say the thing, and I've found this in coaching situations, I do some executive coaching and, and typically when I've said the courageous thing, that's the one that made the client a little upset but was the thing that they needed to hear or the question that really kind of unlocked something. I struggle a bit with, um, you know, what is fully me? And then who am I in different systems? I had a professor once who, who believed there was no self. He said, we're always just a reflection of the company we keep, either, either real or imagined. So if I'm alone and I'm thinking about my friends or I'm thinking about my family, etc., the self is always a reflection of that. But for, for me, there does feel like there's a chewy center. And to, to find, you know, who am I or, you know, what is the authentic me? That's been a, a long journey um, of happy accidents and good training and good experiences. I, I can think of a couple moments you know, I remember going to uh, the Center for Creative Leadership's leadership development program, and they have you, you have like a battery of instruments. And I remember reading feedback, Firo B and Myers Briggs and DISC and you know everything you could imagine. And I remember reading a bunch of uh, Likert scale feedback and how do I rate myself versus others. And I remember the lowest score I got on any question was has a pleasant disposition. And that was a pretty significant moment for me when, when I realized like, oh, I'm showing up kind of, a, can I use colorful language on this? Absolutely. Topic? Yeah. So I'm, I'm showing up at work like an asshole sometimes. I didn't like that, but it was authentic. <laughs> so I had to kind of figure out which of those three buckets is that in? Maybe that's a career derailer. Maybe let me work on that. But that's around the same time that I started thinking about my personal values I started thinking about dreams and I remember doing an exercise called a journey line, which is, you know, chart your life from birth to today. And we did it like a stock ticker. And I remember that there were highs, that there were lows. And I think that exercise really taught me like, what are the moments that I learned from? What are the things that are unique to me? You know, you don't have a lot of English majors in the army who worked at a wine company you do, et cetera, et cetera, afterwards. So I started to get more confidence that the things that were unique to me were maybe the things the world needed or maybe the things that the organization needed because nobody else can bring that stuff. But it hasn't always been easy. There's imposter syndrome that comes up. There's saboteurs that show up often. I think just over time, gaining confidence in that and getting you know, hearing things from my kids and hearing things from people I've worked with have given me the signposts along the way. 
but I don't remember if it was like, oh, I don't know who I am. Now I know who I am. I'm not operating authentically, but now I am. But I think those moments, like the, the last career transition for me, honestly, was I was in a great job at a fantastic organization surrounded by an awesome team that I had built from the ground up. And I woke up in the middle of the night a couple times and just wasn't feeling right. And there was something about the situation I was in that didn't feel safe. I didn't feel like I had room for growth. And I was feeling like my highest and best use was no longer enough. I think our team had grown to a certain size that was beyond my sweet spot. I was getting bored. And I think it was the waking up in the middle of the night a couple of times realized like, oh, I have a value of audacity. And if I put it in neutral and just stay in this job, that's not going to work for me. And I think a lot of people wouldn't understand that. But I knew that if my number one value is audacity, doesn't sound right. I have an interesting thought of what you said that goes back to the conversation we were having earlier around teams with diver- diverse skill set and you know and putting everybody in their best position you know to do what they're good at. I think one of the key things to have a happy operating team is that everybody is, has the right balance between leveraging what they're strong at, but also feeling growth and feeling that development you skill. I know how to do that for myself, and I think we all know how to do it for ourselves. But as you're thinking about your team, what are some of the things that you can do as a leader to keep an eye on making sure that everybody in the team is finding the right balance between growth and between like, you know, executing where they feel comfortable? Yeah, well, I I don't think comfort is the goal, first of all. And I think that that I often talk a lot in my in my coaching practice about the concept of the edge, like this moment where you're not quite sure, I think there's something else out there, or I, or I think there's a new skill that I need, and, and I'm going to give it a try, but I'm not sure that that is where we have growth is when we push ourselves a little bit. I think it's interesting. I remember going to have drinks one time with a friend and his brother. And the friend of mine and I, we talk about growth and goals and what are we learning all the time. And his brother said uh, one day, he's like, how do you guys know where to develop? And my jaw hit the floor. I'm like, how do you not know? And, and I think that there's a whole continuum of people who are motivated to grow and change and learn and people who aren't necessarily motivated to. And that slider bar fits in different places for different people. So I think the first is I remember reading in, in Kim Scott's Radical Candor, there was a, the thought of rock stars and superstars. Like the superstars maybe are the people that are growing and are, are desiring to take on bigger leadership positions at the company. And the rock stars are the ones that are just making sure that the trains are running on time. They're making sure that they're continuing to build the necessary skills, but they're not necessarily bucking for rank. Both are needed in an organization. And a, and a, a team of like superstar players like if you think basketball you know put michael jordan you know a couple other superstars they don't always mesh together so there needs to be both so so the first is maybe spending some time with the individual to understand what their aspirations are and what their growth what they feel like their growth should be um, i think in a corporate situation there's often a need to grow just to keep up so there's got to be some but everybody has a different amount that they want to grow some people want to grow a huge amount and there's also tenure based on that 
you know, some people that have been in a role a long time have grown a lot, have all the sharp skills and might only need to grow like, hey, how does AI and ML going to change our, our world? Like, how do you want to fit VR into this context? But for the most part, they're, they're very well trained and they don't have that same desire for growth. So making it OK for people to have different growth aspirations and also recognizing that when someone's more junior in tenure, they're going to likely need to grow more because they don't have the big tool set created yet. So they might be working areas of their strength, but building those tools. So there's a there's maybe a two by two of, you know, a growth aspiration by versus tenure and helping sit down with that person, figure out where it is, how they can help the organization, how it matches their future career direction and building that plan with them. I think that makes the most sense rather than try to put a frame of everyone should be growing at this particular rate and they should be growing this many skills a year. I think that's not necessarily true for everyone because you've got the person who knows where to grow and the person who doesn't know where they should grow or, or how to uh, or how to do that. So maybe a bespoke approach to development. One goal is fine for some people. Five is fine for other people. I've found that sometimes paying attention to the fuel for growth is important too. Like for me, I mentioned early on in the beginning, I was trying not to be a bad leader. That's a fuel that burns with some toxicity. Like I'm so hyper focused on growth because I'm not good enough today. It isn't how I approach growth now. I try to say like, hey, the foundation is great. I'm going to build upon it and continue to grow. But that that negative energy around growth, sometimes people that have the highest growth aspirations are burning a toxic fuel. I'm like, I want more. It's not enough. I want to grow. I want to build these skills so that I can conquer the world. Like, you know, you got to balance the happiness and fulfillment in there. So if someone has a growth aspiration that's smaller, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just might mean it's right-sized. I'm going to ask you one sort of broad question, taking advantage of your expertise. You're now in a company that does team building using technology. What is the role of technology? What are like the most important things that people need to think about in terms of like, okay, I can't just run and build teams without supporting technology. And these are the advantages that are created for me. Yeah. Uh, the company is Rally Bright and we're focused on building high-performing, inclusive, resilient teams. And so there's a couple different parts to that. As one, making sure that we're inclusive. Two, making sure that we're high-performing. And three, making sure that we're resilient. So we're, we're growing teams over time without burning them out. I think there are a lot of tools available for um, performance management. There are a lot of tools available for leadership development. There's not a lot of tools that are available for the teams, specifically for the teams to improve not only their performance, but the experience. If you think about who owns team development at an organization, maybe the learning teams, but usually they're more leadership development focused, maybe the HR business partners, but they're usually focused on employee relations and attrition and hiring and onboarding and that stuff. And they may not have the expertise of organizational development tools. So what we built, the founder, John, built Rally Bright for really was to give people some awareness of where the team needs to improve. And I think, you know, you can always say, oh, we need to improve our relationships. We need to improve our psychological safety. We need to improve all these things. Well, which ones does this particular team need now? Based on their makeup, based on the profiles, based on their mission, what do they need to improve now? 
And I think this goes back to my lean six days. Like what got me excited about the company is I don't have to improve everywhere. I just have to improve in these two or three areas. And then we'll reassess. And then we'll improve in those two or three areas. So it's more focused and more effective at developing a team. You know, to me, sometimes just the mere fact that we're going to talk about the team experience is likely to increase the quality of the team experience. So the I've found that there's a few CEOs that really get it and have uh, team assessments for all of their teams so they can see which team is performing best, which team is performing maybe worst and needs a little bit of support, and then across which dimension do we need to focus in the organization. So it gives that CEO a, a, a broad view of what's going on. If you think about it from the team standpoint, the team is quickly able to see where they need work. We provide a suite of resources to help build. Um, so for example, you need to set direction for a team. Here's a 90-minute workshop that can help you establish that shared purpose. But not every team needs that. So I like the idea of having a way to quickly measure, diagnose, and improve your particular team. And I just haven't found any technology out there. I, I was looking for it for 20 years. I haven't found something really simple that gives me the data to then say, here's where we need to improve, and then checks back again to see if it made a difference. And I'm, I'm really excited about it just because I was a customer. I bought the tool. I had a great conversation with the founder. I got value out of the tool. And then I said, God, I'd love to, I'd love to participate and work in this mission and somehow make it happen. And I was lucky enough that, that we were able to. But it goes back to that guy, Steve. Right. It's not just about getting the numbers. It's about improving the team experience, communication, conflict resolution, some of those basic blocking and tackling human skills that I'm excited to have the opportunity to participate in helping teams develop. And not every organization has an organizational psychologist on staff or as a team leader. Not every human resource person has years and years and years of team data and you know research backed insights on how teams become high performing, we can provide that. And almost it's like team development augmentation for the, for the individual, for the leader, for the CEO, and for the, for the HR organization. I didn't really realize, I thought that a lot of my work was around learning and development. And it has been, especially around tech adoption and change management and reinforcing development. But I'm able to couple that with the team experience and kind of getting back to that feeling of intimacy that I had on my Bradley or on my tank, I get to do that as my full-time job. So I think this is a, a great closing the circle and, and closing sort of the professional part of the conversation. Uh, before we go to the three personal questions, people who want to find Radley Bride is radleybride.com, correct? R-A-L-L-Y-B-R-I-G-H-T.com. And then where else can people find you? I know you mentioned you're also SEAL coaching. Yeah, my, my practice is Sabre Coaching, a tip of the cap to my roots in the Armored Cavalry. So S-A-B-E-R-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com. Uh, I've been enjoying not only coaching executives, leaders of teams on their team dynamics, but also I've been doing a little bit of career transition just because that's been pretty recent for me. And, th and that's enjoyable, especially people that want to make an uncommon career transition, like, oh my God, how do I get from this industry to that industry? If I can get from a from a from a tank to a <laughs> to a wine company, wine company to a law firm, lots of things are possible. That's great. So first, quote unquote, personal question: What's a hobby that you have outside of your work, and how has that maybe impacted your work life? I, I have recently connected my coaching with running. 
I tend to run quite a bit. I think what it's taught me is you got to put in the effort over time to get results. It's taught me that the right adaptation to stress can lead to better results. It's taught me that rest and recovery are critical if you overdo it. And it's also taught me that the foundational habits are critical, sleep, nutrition, water, etc. So I think that's the one I engage in most. I think the other one probably is just reading. I tend to be a pretty avid reader, and I'd say that my point of view is generative. So as I learn new things, I integrate new things in. You know, the, the, the idea of you know, fitting in versus belonging is kind of a new one for me that, I'm, that I've added in. And I feel like when I have a conversation today about team development, it'll probably be different than what I'll have six months from now or a year from now. Now, my favorite question of the show, it's, you know, every era is business expressions or cliches or jargon that at some point become meaningless. Which one is the one that drives you crazy? You know, I don't know if it's a business lingo, but it's a word in our lexicon that bothers me. And the word is notification. I would like to rebrand that word as interruption. So every time any sort of platform, phone, website asks me if I want my interruptions on, my answer will be no. Because I want to think, I want to engage with technology on my own terms and my own time. And if we had just called it what it really is, I think we'd be uh, better off as a society. That's fabulous. <laughs> and I agree 100%. Final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you go the body route, a recipe or a drink or something that right now you really enjoy. And if you go the soul route, book, piece of music, piece of art, movie, whatever, something that right now gives you inspiration. I'd say I'm going to go for the soul, but it also helps the body. And it's not a specific thing. It's funny stuff. I did some research on, on uh, the use of humor as a response to stress in organizations as I was doing my, my org psych masters. And there's so many benefits that come from humor. I mean, certainly it can be used incorrectly. It can be used in a damaging way, you know, teasing, etc. But, you know, watching comedians, watching little clips, you know, sharing jokes that are appropriate, telling a funny story. I think those things go a really long way. And, and I can tell a team that is high performing laughs together, whether it's at each other or at the situation or at how much stress there is or about the customer complaints, uh, taking the opportunity to bring in some levity. That was a value in the last team that I had that, you know, one individual brought a ton of levity. A smile makes a big difference. Laughter is contagious. So I think the food for the soul for everyone is just embrace the funny stuff. And if there's a moment of humor that you can inject, um, the team will probably thank you for it. Yeah, I have a, one of my values is actually fun. And it is I take my work seriously. I don't take myself seriously because of my work. I love it. Mike, I'm so glad we were able to finally do this. Thank you so much for coming and for all your very thoughtful insights. My pleasure. So much fun to be here with you, Dino. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars all the way.
Stick around because after the credits, I'm gonna play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com and make sure you follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at al4edp with the letter D. On Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song from Susan's album, The Hammer and the Heart. It's called Field of Stone. You're on your